0: so you can show the world what you're made of. Visit Bloomberg.com enterprisedata enterprise data to learn more.
1: Live from our nation's capital, this is Bloomberg Sound On.
0: Talking about a huge issue here is investment in marginalized communities.
1: They want
2: to deconstruct this package and cherry pick what they like and what they don't like.
0: China is surging forward with major investments. Bloomberg, sound on. The insiders, the influencers, the insights. Biden has promised again and again that he will unite the country. Who do you think Biden has to watch in terms of moderate defectors?
3: Infrastructure has always been bipartisan. Bloomberg, sound on. On Bloomberg Radio. All right, I'm Jack Fitzpatrick here at Bloomberg Sound On. It's a Wednesday. We've got Bloomberg politics contributor Rick Davis with us. And let's get straight to the news at the top of the hour because we've got Congressman John Yarmouth on the line with with us. Uh, He's not just representing the Louisville area in the House of Representatives. He is the House Budget Chairman, which makes him the perfect person to talk about budget issues, uh, the reconciliation process, and if Democrats are going to go it alone on infrastructure, all the big news of the day. Congressman, uh, I understand it's such a busy time for you, we've got to really get straight to the news, so I'm going to skip all of my questions relating to the upcoming (laughs) season of The Bachelorette, and I'm just going to ask you about the budget. Thank you so much for joining us.
1: No, good to be with you, Jack.
3: So it doesn't look great on infrastructure in terms of a, a bipartisan series of negotiations. Uh, we heard the president uh, say we're, we're done talking to Senator Capito on this. Maybe there's something bipartisan in another group of lawmakers. But because you are budget chairman, if Democrats go it alone and want to pass something with a simple majority in the Senate, they're going to look to you because the budget chairman crafts the outline for that process to, to get something through. At this point, have you gotten ahead and done some work on reconciliation instructions, or uh, what have you been able to do to sort of lead off of first base, if anything at all?
1: Well, uh, first of all, thanks for having me on, Jack. What we've been doing for the last uh, couple of months is uh, doing the preliminary work on a budget resolution for fiscal 2022, Mm -hmm. and ultimately the reconciliation instructions that will be a part of that budget resolution. So we there's been no decision made as of yet as to what would go into, but, into reconciliation instructions. Uh, we're assuming at this point that everything that the president has proposed in the American Jobs Plan and the American Families Plan will be done by reconciliation. Then if that's what we're preparing for, and then if if there is a bipartisan agreement reached on any part of it, uh, the infrastructure part, for instance, the hard infrastructure part, hmm. then uh, we would just take that out of the instructions.
3: Okay. So what's your deadline to decide whether all of this is going to go through reconciliation? When, when do Democrats need to just figure that out?
1: Oh, I think, you know, I don't think there's a hard and fast deadline. I think uh, right now the, the president's um, statement yesterday that he had, he had given up on the talks with uh, Senator Capito uh, was basically our trigger to uh, to make that assumption that we were going to go it alone on all of it. Now I, I know that there's another group talking, and I heard late this afternoon that they had uh, fallen apart based on the, the uh, revenue uh, mm-hmm. proposal. And so I just think it's highly unrealistic to believe there's ever going to be a bipartisan agreement on any of this. So. Uh we're going full speed ahead. You know, we, we are, are we have to get something out of uh, out of committee and to the floor by uh, the end of september we, we have to get it done. I mean it's July. we have to get it done by the the August recess and um, so that's that's what we're working toward.
3: Okay. Uh, that's that's significant that you're moving forward on the assumption that this isn't going to work out. And if it's great if it does, but uh, it sounds like you're preparing for it to not work out in, in case that's the eventuality. Um, I want to ask exactly. you about the debt limit as well. Is there a plan on the debt limit? The, the formal deadline for that is August 1st. Uh, do you know how lawmakers are going to address that?
1: Well, uh, no, and there's a there's a lot of thinking being done and talking at the leadership level. I had a conversation with uh, Secretary Yellen this morning, um, and she, um, you know, said they're, they they don't have definitive plans yet. They're, they don't. They also don't know exactly when, uh, how long we go before we run out of money. Uh, uh, she could, because there are a lot of variables right now with pandemic related spending and so forth. So, you know. What, what we will try to avoid is, is uh, going down to the, to the end of the fiscal year and having the debt ceiling issue unresolved mm-hmm. and therefore, you know, allowing brinkmanship to be done and possible government shutdown. That's what we, mm-hmm. we have to
3: avoid. Well, should the debt limit, in your opinion, be done through reconciliation or should you insist on trying to get a bipartisan deal on that?
1: I don't think it matters, to tell you the truth. Uh, it, it has to be done. Uh, we're not going to default on our obligations. Everybody understands that. I don't think the Republicans have any interest in precipitating a government shutdown. Uh, that didn't bode well for them when they did it uh, several years ago. Hmm. So, um, yeah, I don't, I'm, I'm, I'm agnostic on how we do it. The, the law allows us to do a separate reconciliation uh, Process for the debt ceiling alone. Mm-hmm. uh We may put it in the in the one with the budget resolution, uh, or we may just do may be able to do a, a standalone bill that has bipartisan support. We'll see. Because what we're going to have to do is you can't just say, you know, personally, I I think we ought to do away with the debt ceiling because, right. uh, you know, we've we've basically ignored it for the last 80 years, mm-hmm. uh, but not 80 years, but. Uh, 80, 80 or more times in the last, uh, uh, let's see, 60 years, 50 years. Um, but um, we have to set some subsequent limit. So mm-hmm. um, or, we do a, or we do a short-term extension to get us past the fiscal year and, mm-hmm. and um, those negotiations. Right. So, I'm, again, it has to be done. Um, leadership will basically tell me how they want to do it.
3: <laughs> okay.
2: Chairman, I was wondering if I could get back to a little bit of a revenue question, even though you're budget chairman, I I know this is a ways and means question, but uh, I'm looking at this, you know, funding of a lot of these initiatives and, you know, they're really significant, right? This administration is going big. Um, The most recent Endless Frontier Act just, you know, committed over $250 billion. Um, the, the, the House Transportation Committee already marked up $550 billion in transportation funds. Uh, we're talking about 100 million new vaccines to be uh, sent uh, uh, overseas. That's, that check's got to get written. And I guess when I look at this uh, infrastructure bill, I mean, right now the current deal on the table for $1.2 trillion is only $250 billion in new spending. And, I mean, it just seems to me it wouldn't be that difficult to find a 250 billion dollar uh, 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 pocket that could be put toward this uh, this this massive build for our infrastructure is is there any sense that that this isn't it's not as hard as you think it is?
1: It's it's hard because the lines have been drawn on on a philosophical basis and not on a, on a pragmatic basis. You know, that the Republicans have basically said. We're not going to give up any of the cuts that we made in 2017. And, um, you know, Democrats say, on the other hand, we want the tax code to better reflect the realities of the, of the world. And that, uh, corporations like FedEx, which make their, their entire business model predicated on infrastructure and they pay zero tax rate, that they might want to contribute part uh, of that, uh, that investment. So, um, it, it, if it were just dollars, it would be easy. It's, unfortunately, it's just not dollars here.
3: So, Congressman, I, I, I do want to ask on the spending front. You've talked before about the difficulty of uh, herding the cats on, in the House Democratic Caucus on how much money to give the military. Uh, there are progressives who have complained that Biden, President Biden didn't propose an actual cut to defense spending. Republicans want a bigger increase. Uh, Really, I just want to know, do you think that any of the progressives are being a a little unrealistic because it will need bipartisan support to fund the government, or how do you see this panning out with the defense spending debate?
1: Well, I've heard a little bit of um, of discontent about uh, the 1.6 increase in in defense spending. Yes, there are a number of our caucus who would like to seek actual uh, cuts in defense, Um, but I think on the other side... They realize that the increases in non-defense spending, which is where most of democratic priorities are, most liberal democratic priorities, is is the biggest that we've had in my memory, certainly in relation to defense spending. So I think they will realize in the final analysis that uh, this is a that's a trade-off worth making that the 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 increases in the spending they really care care about. Are, are are worth giving a just a nominal increase to defense, which basically goes to payroll increases for the our, our men and women in uniform. I will say um, one other thing, and that is that I think there is a growing realization in the Democratic Caucus that we are essentially all Joe Manchin, that <laughs> because of our we because of our slim margins, uh, right. we can't we don't have the luxury of being independent. That if we're going to get anything done, anything passed, that we're going to, we're all going to have to unify behind uh, one one package, and uh, I think that that's what will, I think that's the mentality that will guide us and, and we will end up passing this. Uh,
3: this budget congressman one last quick one for you to to put a bow on this I I asked senator Richard Shelby the top Republican on Senate appropriations will play a pretty key role in funding uh, talks later in the year how he thinks things are gonna go there's a a government funding deadline of September 30th he says not only does he expect to rely on a stopgap it's probably gonna be multiple stopgaps could be into December do you agree or is there any chance that we have a government funding deal in September
0: uh, is there
1: any chance? Yes. Is there a, uh, <laughs> a real a chance? chance? No, a real, uh, is, no. I mean, the odds are against it for sure. Mm-hmm. Uh, we're going to get all of our we're going to get all of our spending bills done before the August recess. Uh, the Senate does not have a history of getting their work done on time, um, and so, so it would be unrealistic to think that uh, the Senate and the House, if we pass our appropriations bill, so that the Senate could do that. And then we could reconcile the differences before the end of September. I think that's highly unlikely. So, yes, uh, we're most likely going to end up with a continuing resolution.
3: Okay. Congressman, thank you so much for joining us. I think we went a little over your time. I really appreciate the, uh, the candid uh, evaluation of what the rest of this fiscal year is going to look like. Uh, it, it, I, as we wait uh, for our colleague over at Bloomberg TV, Joe Weisenthal, to, uh, to come in actually with a really interesting-sounding interview with Senator Elizabeth Warren on uh, Bitcoin and cryptocurrencies, which we'll take you to. Rick, real quick, what, what's your headline from this interview with the budget chairman?
2: Well, I, I think it's interesting that, uh, uh, you know, we, we, we have a budget getting produced in the House that is as dislocated as it is in the Senate, you know, compared to what they're doing. And, and that's not unusual in the normal budget process. Uh, what's interesting is that I think uh, this chairman is using the time he has to get his budget done in a way, I think, to help leverage uh, the Democrats in the Senate to try and get some of these things passed. And right. and I think – that. Yeah, that's a smart caucus strategy, you know, between the House and the Senate, but uh, but the question is, you know, is the Senate got enough horses, Democrat votes, right. to actually produce anything in line with what he's doing in the House? And I, I, I suspect it's probably going right. to be very hard.
3: Coming up, uh, we're going to go to Joe Wisenthal with Senator Elizabeth Warren. Let's go to that live interview now.
4: All right, welcome back to Bloomberg Tech. I'm Jill Weisenthal. I want to welcome right now uh, for more Senator Elizabeth Warren of Massachusetts, hosted the hearing today on digital currencies and uh, central bank digital currencies. Senator Warren, thank you so much for joining us. Let's start with like the digital currencies that are going up and down every day a lot. You started the hearing with some pretty harsh words for them saying they've failed to deliver on some of the promises of a more, financial, uh, a more inclusive financial system. They're volatile, they're not good for uh, spending. In your view, do they need to be regulated further, and is is there something specific in mind that you have that would sort of uh, bring this area under control better?
5: So this was our first hearing on digital currencies, and we had a chance to talk with experts, bring in a lot of senators around it, but the bottom line was that what's happening right now in cryptocurrency, like Bitcoin and Dogecoin, it's a wild west out there. And it makes it not a good uh, way to buy and sell things and not a good investment and an environmental disaster. So do we need some regulation around this? You bet we do.
4: In in your view, whose purview should this fall under? And when you say, okay, we need more regulation, do you have something in mind or like a a sort of conceptual framework for how regulators should should approach this burgeoning space, which as you say kind of has a Wild West vibe?
5: Well, right now, I think what we need to do is the next round of hearings and investigations. Since uh, these cryptocurrencies have gone everywhere, then that means we need to bring in the people who have different responsibilities. So when we're talking about the investor aspect, that people are buying Bitcoin for speculation, Uh, You know, if you were buying stock for speculation, you'd be protected by rules against things like pump and dump, but not when you're buying Bitcoin for speculation. We need to talk with the SEC about that. On the other hand, when we're talking about the question about bringing it into our monetary system and uh, banks uh, either holding Bitcoin, that becomes an issue that we need to talk about with the bank regulators, so there are a lot of different pieces to this. Uh, And I think the answer that we saw today is that right now, our regulators and frankly, our Congress is an hour late and a dollar Mm. short. And we need to catch up with where these cryptocurrencies are going.
4: Let's talk about the idea of a a digital US dollar, the idea that someone could hold a digital dollar in an online wallet or in in a wallet on their phone in some way. Lots of talk about it, still kind of unclear to me of, if something like that were to be implemented, what the goal would be. What do you think about the idea of, say, a central bank digital currency, and how do? You, and what do you think the, the purpose would be if the US were to at some point launch one?
5: You know, that's one of the things that came up in this hearing multiple times today. Yeah. It's that I understand how a digital currency would work instead of the United States government printing dollar bills or minting coins. It would, for example, pay a social security check by just putting digital money in your wallet. But the question was, what is the problem it's trying to solve? Right. Uh, because, as we all know, most of what happens today is digital, in the sense that uh, my bank does not hold those dollars physically. Right? right? It has a it has a number in a ledger. And when I transfer money to pay on my credit card, they make a transfer that happens electronically. So you really have to kind of think through this. On the other hand, we had some really thoughtful experts who were saying, you know, you may want to integrate this into other systems uh, for payment, uh, for international payment. And there are questions about whether or not the United States maintains competition, say, with China that's looking deeply into digital currency. Uh, of course, the Chinese want to be able to track all the purchases of uh, all yeah. of their citizens, something we're not looking to do in the United States. But I think the answer there is it's it's on the front edge. And here's what troubles me, is that cryptocurrency, the private version, has, has swept the earth. Digital currency is not really out of the starting gate yet. Right. And so so you've got this situation where we kind of need to figure out, is are we going to try to give digital currency a little boost here? Uh, but we really need to keep an eye on digital currency while we're doing that.
4: I want to ask you a question, and I think it actually applies both to cryptocurrencies and the idea of a national digital currency. And I'm glad you brought up China and the idea of, OK, a system to monitor everyone's transactions, because right now, if you and I wanted to transact online, we would do it through, I don't know, PayPal or something like that, and it would be an entity that could look at it. Do you think private transactions should be preserved in some way? This is a thing that people worry about with physical cash disappearing, the idea of transaction privacy. Is this a value that you have and that it's some way we should find a way to continue to allow that to exist in the digital space?
5: So I understand the idea behind privacy, and I don't want The federal government tracking how I spend my dollars. On the other hand, think about the key feature of a cryptocurrency, and that is secrecy. And it's pretty clear right now that that secrecy really is helpful for drug dealers and for uh, uh, crypto warriors who are hacking into systems around the world and demanding ransom. Uh, because it's a secret way to make payment. Now the United States has dealt with this traditionally by saying that what happens in checking accounts is secret until someone goes before a judge and gets an order to be able to look at a checking account. That means that checking accounts are not great ways to transfer money between drug dealers. They are not great ways to collect ransom. And this is one of the concerns about cryptocurrency. There's no equivalent to be able to say, okay, you can be private nearly all the time, but not so much that you've created a haven for the criminals.
4: And just want to remind viewers and listeners we're speaking with Democratic Senator Elizabeth Warren of Massachusetts. Uh, Senator Warren, you know. Another sort of theme that runs through all this, and it's, of course, a lot of talk in both actually progressive and conservative circles, frankly, is corporate power and particularly tech Mm -hmm. corporate power and the power of the big four, Apple and Facebook. Do you think, Mm -hmm. um, you know, one of the things about digital currencies is they are these decentralized networks. And do you think that this should be something that potentially you could be... um, enthusiastic about, the idea of these sort of like digital decentralized networks that aren't necessarily uh, under the control of any any one company.
5: Wow, you took a turn I didn't expect you to take there. I thought you were going to go in the other direction and say, does it make you at all nervous if um, Amazon or Apple is collecting an incredible amount of private information, not only about your purchases with them but every place you spend, every single penny, that makes me really uneasy. And it makes me particularly uneasy because there's no consumer protection in any part of this. You know, right now, if you use your credit card, you and I both know that if you get scammed, the, the most you lose is 50 bucks, right? right? That if it gets lost, the most you lose is 50 bucks. Not so. If you use a cryptocurrency, one of these, as you call it, decentralized, but we could also call it Wild West, no rules, no protection kind of currencies, and when you load the information of all your purchases with other information aggregation that we know Amazon is engaged in, that we know Apple has engaged in, then look at the power that's becoming concentrated in one company. Uh, And the ability to be able to exercise influence politically, economically, that really makes me uneasy.
4: So a lot of people really are uh, uncomfortable with this level of uh, corporate power for all of the reasons you just described. It seems like the main tool that people talk about for going after it is antitrust, but it's not the classical sort of monopoly pricing power issues that you've just laid out. Is there a better tool out there in the toolkit to address what you've uh, identified than the sort of antitrust approach that is sort of commonly uh, taken here?
5: So there are two ways to think about antitrust first. And one is to say, let's take antitrust back to its roots where big is a problem Mm. and it poses a threat economically and it poses a threat um, uh, politically. So that's one part. Another is to say, maybe it's time to add to our antitrust laws to make sure that they're covering the kind of platform approach that has created uh, so much more concentrated power. But the other is to say, hey, regulators. Get up off your duffs and get in on this. Uh, We need the SEC. We need the Fed. We need others who say, if you're using this like a currency or you're using it like an investment, then those agencies have a responsibility to step up and make sure that we have some basic consumer protection, that we don't threaten our entire economic system.
4: All right. Really appreciate you joining us. Massachusetts Democratic Senator. Elizabeth Warren, thank you so much. Now, much more coming up on Bloomberg Television and Radio, so stay with us. This is
0: Bloomberg. You know success when you see it. Or you think you do. The people in the spotlight. Athletes, actors, artists. But what about the people behind the scenes? You know, the ones who make it all happen. The lighting engineers, the sideline photographers, the caterers. They're small business masterminds. And if there's one thing they have in common...
3: All right. That was Joe Weisenthal over on Bloomberg TV with Senator Elizabeth Warren. A a few really interesting points on cryptocurrency and how Congress is looking at that. Uh, I'm here with Bloomberg Politics contributor Rick Davis. Rick, my question for you is, Okay, she laid out a lot of concerns about cryptocurrency. What comes next? Is this something that we can see bipartisan legislation on? or, Or what do you expect next from Congress?
2: Well, I think uh, there's a lot of this kind of hearing activity going on because I think most members of Congress that I talk to haven't got a clue how to look at the perspective of cryptocurrency, especially as fast as it's emerging. I mean, this last week, there was a big conference in Miami, Bitcoin 2021, and and it kind of focused attention on the fact that cities like Miami welcoming groups like this because they're starting to adopt Bitcoin and and other cryptocurrencies as payment from the city.
3: I'm Jack Fitzpatrick, here with Bloomberg Politics contributor Rick Davis. And we're joined on the phone now by Lester Munson, principal at the BGR Group. Uh, Lester, thanks so much for joining us. Really appreciate you uh, being able to share your knowledge on foreign policy issues, especially because we're going to have to be uh, looking ahead to the G7 meetings, the uh, president's meeting with UK officials. uh, And then, of course, it gets tougher later in the schedule with meetings on Turkey. Uh, with uh, Turkish President Erdogan and uh, Russian President Vladimir Putin. Let's, let's tee this up, though, uh, with a little bit of sound, because earlier today <clears throat> National Security Advisor Jake Sullivan was asked about what to expect during a news availability on Air Force One, and he talked a little bit about what the president will uh, discuss with U.K. Prime Minister Boris Johnson. Here's the sound on that.
6: He'll be talking to Boris Johnson about COVID-19, about climate change, as the U.K. is hosting COP26 in Glasgow later this year uh, about their joint
4: commitment uh, to developing an an infrastructure uh, financing
3: mechanism for the developing world that is uh, climate friendly, high standards and transparent. Okay, so that sounds relatively positive, and maybe we'll get to some of the controversial stuff later in the trip. Uh, but, Lester, I, I, I want to get your take on this. And, and in particular, I'm curious about issues on a global tax, a global minimum tax, maybe some tough issues relating to Brexit uh, and the Good Friday agreement. Can you lay out what do you think are the actual most difficult Issues to come up with Biden and and some of the U.S. allies. Is this going to just be sort of a kumbaya moment early in the trip, or are there any really tough issues that he's going to have to broach with the U.K. or with other G7 allies?
6: Uh, Jack, thanks thanks for having me on. I think that's a terrific question. I, my sense is that the administration would like to would like to exploit kind of the low hanging fruits of. Hmm. Uh, of this trip, and, and talk about restoring alliances and relationships with Western European countries that have been with us since uh, World War II and before, and, and they want to, you know, kind of emphasize repairing the breach created perhaps in the last administration with a lot of our friends and allies. They, they want to be seen as, as healers of that breach, uh, so they're they're gonna they're gonna steer the the news attention, the narrative to that story. But you're absolutely right. There's a, there's a whole series of tough questions confronting the G7, confronting the NATO meeting uh, later on. And then, of course, uh, Biden's going to be meeting directly with Vladimir Putin for a one on one. There's there's a whole series of, of very good, uh, very, very tough challenges for President Biden. He's going to want to tell the good story. But but you're right. The real story is how are they going to grapple with the same challenges that President Trump faced arising rising China? Uh, a, rec- a recalcitrant Russia that is kind of fighting the West on almost every point. Mm. Uh, the difficulty of developing a green infrastructure plan without uh, making some concessions on natural gas and, and some mm. more sensible approaches that maybe the left won't tolerate. Uh, it's once, once you get past that kind of good news of repairing these relationships, that kind of easy win for the president, it gets a lot harder
3: yeah, that's a really interesting point on uh, especially on natural gas. You know, I remember uh, toward the end of his term, President Obama. Uh, you know, a, a Democrat, popular among—I don't know about the, the super progressive left, but it, not just a centrist—saying uh, Europe, uh, European Union countries should look at fracking and, and that as being a, a topic uh, relating to energy independence, specifically with an eye on Russia. Rick, what are the the energy politics at play here with some of uh, some of our uh, the U.S. allies? I'm s- specifically thinking of the Nord Stream Two. New News and Biden dropping objections to that. Uh, it, how tricky politically do some of those issues get?
2: Yeah, I think it's uh, been a massive issue uh, for the last few decades in uh, Europe because Russia has used hydrocarbons as a tactic to both reward and to punish uh, his uh, his friends and his enemies. And, uh, and China's insatiable appetite for hydrocarbons has driven most of its adventurism in the region also. I mean, Churchill called Russia and China the infernal twins, and I think uh, 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 President Biden may be agreeing with him. Uh, it's 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 part of this effort that not only as uh, Lester mentioned building the relationships back with our with our allies, but finding a solution to a situation that heretofore hasn't existed, which is Russia and China teaming up together, especially on the insatiable need for and exploitation of hydrocarbons.
3: Right. Uh, there There was some news today uh, as U.S. lawmakers criticized the Colonial Pipeline company's security practices uh, after news of a, a security breach that led to that shutdown based on uh, a password being used. I'm curious how much of a focus this is going to be at the G7. How, how much is the Colonial Pipeline going to sort of focus a, as, a, a I guess, a, a part of the conversation about cybersecurity? uh, Lester, what do you you see uh, that playing into?
6: Well, this is uh, it's a great, it's a fascinating issue. Uh, This is the latest episode of a phenomenon we've seen for years of uh, you know bad actors hacking into private companies, exploiting Americans' personal data. Uh, Now it's kind of uh, fallen, it's kind of spilled over into. Direct impact on the the real everyday economy for Americans, whether it's you know bacon cheeseburgers or filling up your your tank with gas, uh, it's becoming more and more real. But this has been going on for a very long time. A lot of people have been thinking about the right response to this. The Trump administration, uh, you know, somewhat to its credit, took some more aggressive steps on a cyber front on both defense and offense. Uh, the Biden administration. Uh, needs to kind of pick that up, make a right. little bit more sense out of it and push it forward. And they and they need to engage with our allies. Russia's right. a big problem here. We need to have a united front.
3: This is Bloomberg Sound On on Bloomberg Radio. I'm Jack Fitzpatrick, joined today by Bloomberg Politics contributor Rick Davis, and we've got Lester Munson on the line. He is a principal at the BGR Group with a lot of experience on foreign policy issues. I'm going to jump to my most ridiculous question. Lester, I'm looking at the schedule uh, for President Biden. Yes, he's going to speak to Prime Minister Boris Johnson in the UK, but he's also got a meeting scheduled with Queen Elizabeth, and I will admit I don't entirely understand what do you talk to the Queen about? Is this a policy discussion? Uh, does she have enough of a role, or is this a, sort of a symbolic thing? Do you have any actual expectations uh, for the meeting with the Queen?
6: Well, my advice would be not to bring up uh, wayward family members of uh, of the <laughs> royal family uh, or or of the president's family. Uh, no, it's it's important. It's an important meeting. You know, we uh, we had a whole revolution in this country against uh, the British monarch, and. Yep, we did uh, a few years ago. And it's nice as part of this sp- special relationship to show that there are no hard feelings and and we're happy to embrace their ancient form of government and, and pay due deference to the to the monarch. So I think uh, I'm joking a little bit, but I think it's, it's an important symbolic gesture. It's important to the British people. It's important to a lot of Americans uh, that we acknowledge uh, the important role of this queen, she's a particularly amazing monarch, uh, long lived, well accomplished, and, um, has kept an even keel through a lot of troubled times. Uh, and so it's, it's good for him for doing it.
3: Sure, a a historic figure. I I mean, I I don't think you turn down a meeting with Queen Elizabeth if if she wants one. Um, Let's talk about this TikTok news that came out today. President Biden is revoking the Trump era attempted bans on Chinese owned apps, uh, including TikTok and WeChat. Uh, And he's going to direct Commerce Secretary Gina Raimondo. To evaluate these apps, there could be actions taken against them. But he's turning away from former President Trump's attempt uh, that was held up by courts to just ban the use of TikTok in the U.S. Uh, my first question, Rick: What do you make of this? Is this? Uh, I'm curious if a ban can actually hold up in court. Is there any chance they go back to a ban, or how does it, how do you make sense of sort of uh, Biden's positioning relative to former President Trump on a touchy? Issue relating to uh, relations with China here.
2: Yeah, I really think uh, President Biden, and President Trump are more similar than dissimilar. Um, it, it, the only real distinction is lifting of the ban that I believe a court held as uh, in, in an injunction. So mm-hmm. I, I don't think anybody actually was banned from downloading the app, right. you know, for uh, TikTok or WeChat. And so the functionality of it is is not much different. Uh, I think the policy actually is Biden reinforcing the policy that Trump had against these two uh, uh, organizations because of piracy theft and data theft. And so I actually think the headline here is really Biden joins Trump in a consistent policy against China data theft. And and the, on the edges, uh, there's, there's a, only a slight difference in what the actual impact going to be.
3: Right. And just to be clear, yes, you can still download TikTok. But this was the attempt by former President Trump uh, that got held up in court to to ban its use in the U.S. And that's a a good point about I mean, we'll we'll see what happens with this review by the Commerce Secretary and see if they're going to take action, because this this really may not be Biden backing off of Trump's Sort of hawkishness toward China, Uh, but can we put this in perspective? I'm curious uh, if this is sort of an international thing. Are are we trying to put TikTok out of business? Are we interested in blocking them here, Uh, Lester? Do you know sort of what the end goal is uh, for for the U.S. federal government's action relating to TikTok?
6: You know, Jack, I think there's a really interesting. A conundrum out there for policymakers in the U.S. They may not quite realize it yet, but there's there's an easy hit on state-owned enterprises from China, uh, those companies that are owned in part or in whole by the Chinese government. And you can see that they're in for a lot of sanctions and restrictions. It's those companies that, are, that don't fit into that category that are basically independent companies. And some folks will argue There's no such thing as an independent company in China, and that's a a discussion worth having. But these companies that are not, in fact, owned by the Chinese government don't have anything to do with the military. Mm -hmm. How do you treat those companies? Uh, And I think that's a conundrum for both the Chinese government and the American government. Congress is uh, moving legislation right now, uh, just passed the Senate yesterday, uh, that will uh, have a role in this conversation. The House is going to take that up relatively soon. The administration is trying to take a more sensible, thoughtful approach, somewhat in line, as Rick was saying, with where the Trump administration was, but making it more coherent. Uh, but this question, this extant question of how do you handle independent Chinese companies is a big one. I don't know that we have a clear answer on it yet.
3: Right. You're, you're refer, uh, referring to the uh, Endless Frontiers bill or whatever they're renaming it to, correct?
1: Exactly. That, uh, just passed yeah, this senate it, Yes
3: my impression is if you can get that past the Senate as they did with 60 plus votes uh, it's probably looking good for the rest of the way should we expect that bill in your opinion to become law
6: uh it's got a, it's got a long way to go uh, the house is going to take a probably a different approach not oh. totally different but they're not going to take the Senate bill and amend it they're going to take their own bill and pass it then you got to mash those two bills together into one that both houses can pass you know like the old uh, Saturday morning cartoon that's that's a long road there's there's a lot of work to do it does kind of look good now but it, it's it's hard to predict the it's, they've got a lot of
3: work to do. Okay, so not exactly a, a glide path necessarily. And I like uh, your verbiage on referring to conference negotiations as mashing them together. That, that really gets at the political reality of, of how this works. Uh, let's talk about what's happening. Let's say on, on foreign policy and look south of the U.S. border, the vice president, uh, Vice President Kamala Harris, went on a, a two-day trip to Guatemala and Mexico. And you may have heard uh, some of the, the critical or at least some of the headlines about her saying to uh, people who may seek to make a a long trek up to the U.S. border with Mexico saying, don't come here. I just want to check, Rick, is this an effective message? She got some pushback from the progressive side from Congresswoman uh, Alexandria Ocasio-Cortez. This seems like a... It, it didn't go well politically, and I'm curious if that's an effective message to a place uh, with a lot of people who may seek asylum. It, was this an effective trip, in your opinion, by the vice president?
2: Uh, I must admit, I, I'm a little confused by the trip. Um, uh, you, so you go to Guatemala and you say, don't leave your country, stay here, don't immigrate to the United States. But you but you don't want to say at the border of the united states of mexico don't come in here <laughs> so right. i mean it's it's it I, it may be a distinction without merit and and so i think that the politics of it is not playing out well mm-hmm. uh i think that uh that they, they've riled up their left base and upset any moderates that they have in the party who actually are worried about border security so mm-hmm. Uh, I'm not exactly sure what they hope to accomplish, but what I think they've accomplished is putting immigration front and center at a time when the president's leaving the country and trying to rally support from our allies against a broader uh, 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 situation with Russia and China. And, and yet the headline coming out of the, the newspapers today is, uh, uh, you know, uh, Kamala Harris, the vice president, you know, sort of mixing it up with Guatemala. And I just mm-hmm. I don't understand what the, the administration hoped to accomplish with that.
3: Yeah, it it seems like a a little bit confusing to know exactly what to make of this uh, politically and exactly what the policy goals are. Uh, Lester, I'm curious, especially, you know, there's uh, news uh, of... The U.S. Uh, looking to provide aid at the source of these issues in Guatemala and in that region. How much can U.S. foreign aid actually do? I mean, how, how much money does it take to uh, solve the problems, or, or is that even possible uh, in areas with uh, such uh, challenging politics? I mean, is U.S. foreign aid actually an answer here? How do you put that in perspective for us, Lester?
6: Well, I think it, I'm a, someone who uh, very much believes and thinks that U.S. foreign assistance is an important tool. Mm-hmm. We need to have it in the toolbox. It can make a big difference in a lot of situations. I think it's a mistake to rely on aid as the answer in Central America. Mm-hmm. It can be part of a bigger, uh, bigger effort uh, that, should be, that should involve pressure on those governments to improve their human rights record, to improve their corruption record. Uh, to push for uh, more democratic reforms. If we need to help them on the security side, we should be doing that. If we need to help them uh, on macroeconomic policy, we should be doing that. This is our backyard. This, the things that happen in Central America have a direct impact on people in our country. We need to be involved. But I think it's I think it's a mistake to over-rely on some sort of magical foreign aid formula that will solve all those problems. It's much more complex than that. The vice president is learning that she's a little bit new at this national game. I'm trying to be optimistic here, and I hope that she realizes that the, the challenge here is quite substantial, is going to require a lot of effort and serious effort. And we can't have ideological responses. We need to be practical. We need to be, get down and dirty and, and work hard with people we can work with in the region to get it done.
3: Right. A really challenging issue, and I think especially challenging heading into the 2022 midterms. If you look at polling, uh, border security and immigration are a really challenging one. Uh, That's it for us. Thank you so much again to Congressman John Yarmuth, the House Budget Chairman. Thanks again to Bloomberg Politics contributor Rick Davis and Lester Munson, a principal at BGR Group. I'm Jack Fitzpatrick. This is Bloomberg.